0: Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. So we're resuming our consideration of what has already turned out to be a very uh, extensive palette in our search for paradigms of leadership, having uh, deconstructed and dissected this idea of leadership and tried to, as it were, discard from our scalpel all of those ego residues uh, that go with the idea of being a leader, being upfront, a kind of management guru uh, mentality or the heaven help us uh, Uh, electoral contest syndromes, various uh, uh, ego uh, manifestations of leadership, uh, we saw have no place in the context of religion, which in many ways turns the world and its paradigms exactly upside down. What happens when you value those who are not valued, when you are actually listening with the poor or being amongst the poor? Uh, when you do not like being upon the throne or the minbar or some other position of responsibility, and plead with God and with your associates to be taken away from uh, these uh, hazardous roles. Because the hadith says, كُلُّكُمْ رَاعٍ وَكُلُّكُمْ مَسْؤُولٌ عَنْ Each one of you is a shepherd, and each one of you is accountable for his flock if the wolf comes along or the sheep is sick and you don't notice or the lamb is not looked after in the middle of the night it's the shepherd's fault don't go blaming the government or a zionist conspiracy or some other thing that you want uh to reduce your status as mess all responsible it's it's up to you and the holy prophet says every one of you is a shepherd even if it just means keeping an eye on the toddler, or feeding your cat, or whatever it might be, there's always somebody for whose well-being you are responsible, and that's all responsible in the literal sense of the word, in other words, having to give a response, to give an account, to explain how you discharged that uh, responsibility, and sometimes it is just feeding the cat, uh, or looking after mum, sometimes it's uh, dealing with... uh, affairs of millions of people, spiritually or temporarily, but uh, uh, in every case, this shepherd hadith applies. And we've seen how characteristically Islamic is the way in which the human response to this weighty uh, burden of responsibility has fluctuated in different times and places in the uh, stately magnificent, ever diversifying, uh, but nonetheless universal progress of the ummah uh, in space and time, uh, one of the things that we 've been trying to get our heads around is this famous principle of what diversity means in the context of a religion that is so emphatic on uh, Teassi, in other words, following the prophetic Uswa, or example. It seems to be a specifically Islamic characteristic. Uh, in other religions you don't quite get this idea of the painstaking almost forensic imitatio Mm -hmm. you don't really try to be like how jesus kept his beard and when he how often he trimmed his fingernails and those sonna things in the context of christianity similarly judaism is not really about trying to be like moses the law is not that it's something else but in our Uh, all-embracing, final, khatam religion, we have this idea of excellence being specifically articulated in terms of the personal emulation of an ideal human being. something very Islamic about this idea of sunnah, and sunnah doesn't translate terribly well into other linguistic, cultural, spiritual frames. It's hard to see how you'd use the word sunnah how you'd find an English dictionary equivalent, it's something specifically Islamic. So on the one hand, we have this Islamic specificity of emulation, Uh, but on the other hand, we have the fact of a religion that is uh, uh, palpably embracing of all kinds of difference and diversity. Uh, And, Uh, One of the ways in which we've reflected on this is by looking at (coughs) the principle of prophetic emulation as precedent and boundary setter and expression of love rather than, as it were, as the founding of an ideology. Important to remember that Islam calls itself deen and doesn't call itself ideology. That's a kind of 20th century aberration and so forth, jump up and down and say, Islam is an ideology. No, that word is not to be found in the Quranic dictionaries. Beware what you're doing if you try and reinvent the whole definition of what God's religion is according to some 20th, or in this case, 18th century understanding of what a worldview might be. It comes from de Tassi in the 18th century, this idea of ideology. And lo and behold, he says, this is what we have when we don't have religion. We no longer believe in the church and the priests. Instead, we believe in humanity as a version of zoology. We're just part of matter. Very positivistic. And yet you get these Muslims nowadays jumping up and down and making themselves feel very modern and very political by saying, Oh, Islam is an ideology, the ideology of Islam. Why do they do that? Well, it's a sad insight into the... Apologetic inferiority complex. Uh, It sounds very modern and relevant if we call it an ideology, so let's go with that. But no, we use our own internal definitions, which presumably are the correct ones, and we say dean. So ideology partakes in science's uh, tendency to reduce everything to a single pattern of explanations and outcomes, it's mathematical. There's only one proper answer to the quadratic equation. Dean, as opposed to this scientistic ideology, historically opens up humanity. Why? Because it's not really ultimately about the collisions of atoms and the forces that determine them, and then ultimately human behavior, dialectical materialism. Ideology is a big word for Marx. It's has the German ideology. It's one of the founding texts of, of, of Marxism. But in said Deen, which is about the spiritual connection of human beings to transcendence, partakes in the indefinite nature of the human spirit, the ruh. So if we're in ideology and we're interested in natural causation, that's going to make us very anxious if things seem to be going wrong in the world. Uh, we are essentially reducing Deen to the level of... A, materialistic ideology and that's why a lot of modern Muslims go wrong because they think oh you've got a socialist Republic and you've got an Islamic Republic and they've got different ideologies but you know, Islam is more radical different deep than that because it's ultimately about uh, that which touches the most indefinable unscientific part of us which is the Ruh participates in the divine freedom and hence is not reducible to a single mathematical calculus of cause, effect, outcomes, but is imponderable, different, and therefore, Deen becomes the cornucopia of incredible uh, diversity and necessary indeterminacy in all but the most essential practices and, and doctrines. And this uh, approximativity of the fiqh is one of the things that divides uh, classical Islam from modernistic or Islamist forms of Islam. that The pre-modern scholars were happy with fiqh as being the latest stage of the evolution of a discussion. And there's ichtilaf and we'll move on to something else. It's approximative. Whereas the ideologists want it to be like you know, Dash Kapital, an absolute fixed and eternally valid statement of class uh, and money and human relations and how we should behave and how the government should be fixed. That's one of the interesting paradoxes of the Enlightenment. Science is to be the measure of all things. We're just thinking animals, but it's also about freedom, liberty, equality, fraternity. However, science is just about matter and there's nothing about it that automatically is going to deliver freedom or humanism might, but there's nothing intrinsically in it that's going to do that. In fact, it tends to limit everything in terms of laws, cause and effect. Deen, that which is from the spirit, can transcend that. And the Qur'an is all about telling us stories about the limitations of human expectations about cause and effect in the world. Look at all those stories. Who could predict materially the outcome of any of them? What really is going to happen to Sayyidina Yusuf? What really is going to be the outcome of Moses' encounter with Pharaoh? What is really going to happen to Ismail and Hajar in the desert? There's always a, a strange, unanticipated uh, outcome. So that's Deen, not ideology, and we need to be really clear about this because those who are redefining the whole uh, world view of our civilization are reducing it to something that cannot but be totalitarian and the result is the same unhappy result as we see with every other totalitarianism. It cannot deal with the flux and the depths of the human condition and certainly has nothing to say to the possibility that prayer might be answered, for instance. So that's one way of beginning this journey towards trying to figure out how we can resolve the paradox of on the one hand, sunnah. So this is how we should live, surely true. And on the other hand, Islam's historic capacity to embrace and to color and to transform and to purify an indefinite range of different human cultures, presumably including our own. And this is where, this might take us too far afield to discuss it, things like Orfa and Ada are important. Pick up any pre-modern book of Islamic jurisprudence and you'll see how important and authoritative Is people's own local custom. Al ma'roofu arfan kal mashru'i shar'an is one of the principles of the Sharia. That which is known by custom is like that which is revealed by revelation. The ideologist can't figure that out and freaks out and says, oh, it's just not the Sunnah, brother. But it's in all of our texts of classical fiqh, in all of the madhabs, and it's part of how our civilization dealt with this idea of Sunnah, which turns out to be infinitely deeper than uh, most of us have imagined. So maybe that's a useful uh, problematic to try and resolve as we move through these different uh, expressions of Islamic excellence in these different times and places that we've looked at. And the, uh, the partic- if all of this, as it were, is the spectrum that comes out of the prophetic prism, Uh, the closer we get to the origins of it all the clearer will be Islam's vision of the accommodation rather than the suppression of the natural diversity of human beings Uh, and much many of the questions that we have about God's law cannot be resolved ideologically and cannot be resolved through what you might call a fundamentalist understanding of what the early Muslims took the sunnah to be. So for instance, just consider, if the Holy Prophet ﷺ had only married Khadija bint Khawalid, or just one woman in his life, and a lot of Muslims nowadays get fidgety about this, what would have been the operative consequences? say if you'd married a woman of 30 of a particular height and build and education all of the muslims who love to follow the sunnah and they should love the sunnah would think i really want a woman like that who looks this way who is of this height who is of that age who has been married who hasn't been married and that would be an understandable form of devotion like those Deobandi maulanas who spend long periods of time and even books Discussing what kind of buttons the Holy Prophet وسلم, had on his qamis, and that's valid in its way. It's an expression of love. But what would be the operative consequences if they also thought about who they should marry in those terms? Problematic, especially for the women. Yeah. Oh, I'm 31, no religious guy's going to marry me. I'm finished. I'll get married at 30 because that's what all the guys with beards think that they should have. It would have very significant consequences. But he marries sallallahu alayhi 11 or so women. And they're really different. Each one is really different. The first one is older than him, and then Aisha is much younger than him, and then there's Um Salama, and then there's Um Habiba, and they're all really different. <coughs> Some of them are of Jewish origin, even. And there's Rehana and... Some are from high background, some are slave origin. <coughs> that diversity has been uh, a sign that the idea of sunnah is not meant in a restrictive sense. And there are so many other dimensions of this. And one of them, <coughs> it seems to me, is this idea, and we hear it in the khutbas, at least if, if you're in a sunni mosque, alaykum bi sunnati, وَصُنَّةِ الْخُلَفَاءِ الرَّاشِدِينَ مِنْ بَعْدِ And the Imam towards the end of the khutbah always mentions their names, Abu Bakr and Omar and Uthman and Ali, and gives a little formulaic expression of the form of perfection represented by each of them. Not which places he conquered or whatever, but what kind of person he represented. And you can see four different people and their sunnah is binding each one represents a color kind of pushed out from the original prophetic uh, brightness but each one of them really different personalities if you think about it what could be more different or heterogeneous than those four men uh, so already in the time of the salaf and under current circumstances it's important to recognize this is not something that happened with the Moguls, or something, but it's in the time of the Salah. Human diversity, big human diversity for women and for men in that early sainted generation. So he says, والسلام, My companions are like the stars, by whichsoever of them you guide yourself, you'll be guided. It's a nice image. Uh, if you know your night sky, there isn't a single star and you can identify it that can't actually help you to figure out where is north and where you should be going. If you're on your uh, mule at night or something, that, that's how you do it before GPS. It's God's GPS and it'll be around for long after the satellites have exploded or um, it's permanent. Uh, and so they too are, are permanent, permanent firmament and this is not intention with the idea of prophetic emulation. You don't say, "Oh, I could follow the Sahabi," but no, I prefer to follow the Sunnah. That's just the early version of people nowadays who are saying, "Oh, you're following the shaybani I follow the Sunnah." This kind of thing that people have in their mind. Well, you could just as well say that about people who are following the ways of Abu Bakr or Abdurrahman bin Auf or. Salman al-Farisi, one of the early great ones. So this idea of human diversity as part of the universality and inclusivity of Islam is right there, right at the beginning of the Islamic package. All of those different personalities, not by their love of the sunnah and the holy prophet and their knowledge of the necessity of conforming to his perfection, homogenized ideologically as socialist man. No. You see those Russian statues from the Stalinist era, and every single one of them looks the same. You know those images sort of in usually bronze things out some some tedious party headquarters, and the guy is kind of standing like this with a torch, and then there's the dawn, and then the woman is holding a hammer, and it's that always the same. Socialist man is the same kind of thing. It's scientific. The Chinese now are doing the same thing. They call it harmonisation a procrustean bed if ever there was one. But no, we don't do that in Islam. Uh, we have uh, this idea of the Sahaba, all 100,000 or whatever, them, whichever one of them. Okay, you might say it's a little bit strange if you're stuck in the desert at night and you say, I'm gonna look for a particular star, al or whatever it is. There it is, I I'm just about to see it. I'm going to steer my donkey by. that. maybe that's a slightly odd thing to do, but it'll still get you to your destination. And that's why we say wal jama'ah. They're not all the same. That is impossible in terms of the eminence. Al-sabiqoon al awwalun al Ashara Mubashara. These great ones are not the same as somebody who converts three days before the Holy Prophet's death and doesn't do much. Obviously, uh, it's not ideological. It recognises human diversity, but in a way that does not ever compromise the all-important Sunni principle of the Sunnah. And we really need to understand this because a lot of our mutual blaming and anxiety amongst Muslims is based on the fact that we differ. And you have a lot of you know, Pakistanis don't understand Islam, and the Saudis like this. And... Difference, diversity. Uh, is the way Allah has made us, is of his signs, the difference of your uh, languages and uh, colors. Uh, and ideology is not into that. It's too scientific. There has to be one proper Chinese citizen. Mm, but Dean doesn't do that. And that's one reason why ideologies always crash. And humiliation, uh, Dean keeps going. So the four khulafat, we could say that's one example. You could talk about the wives of the Holy Prophet and the different types of female perfection. And each of them is an incredible woman, but they're, they're different. Um, but we're going to talk today about uh, one of the khulafat, uh, just to indicate something that, again, makes us think about what we're doing when we think of paradigms of leadership. It's not one paradigm of leadership just be like the Holy Prophet and be identical to that. No, you know the Greek story of the Procrustean bed, the ancient king of Greece who had a bed and he invited his guests to stay on it every night. And if they were too long, he'd cut off their feet. If they were too short, he'd have them stretched. So it's become an English kind of proverb, the Procrustean bread, that which tries to fit everything into a single template, which is what the Marxists tried to do, but with the diversity and difficulty of humankind, uh, didn't really work. People still wanted to have their businesses and to do their own thing, and it didn't fit the reality of humanity. But no, Islam says, Athens, Athens, welcome, and you, you can be as long or short as you like. And, you're still welcome and it's important for us in our anxious and defensive age not to retreat into ideology but to continue this generous affirmation of difference, which is that in Al Khulafa al-Rashidin Al Mahdiina Min Baadi. That's part of the Sunnah. So the one I want to talk about um, is actually uthman bin Afan, may maybe the one that we think about and hear about least. So I'm going to do a bit of bio data. Uh, Some of it will be familiar anyway, Uh, uh, but also a bit of of analysis, What sort of model of sunnah perfection. So you follow him and emulate him. According to the holy prophet himself, uh, that's following the sunnah. That's a big thing. It's not prophecy, but it's kind of in the shape of prophecy. Well, to go through the, the biodata first, um, always essential to see people as consequences of their time and place, as well as people who, certainly in his case, shook and changed the world in, in their time and place. He is the almost exact, precise uh, contemporary of the Holy Prophet, sallallahu does that mean exactly? I mean, uh, just last Thursday happened to be the 40th anniversary of my taking Shahada. Mm. Does that, should I have a party or, I don't know. Um, but it's something to think about. So he is born five days after the Holy Prophet, وسلم, which is, of course, Am al uh the year of the elephant. So a, a close. Contemporary and is also, of course, Qurayshi and his aristocratic. Blue-blooded. Uthman ibn Affan ibn Abil As ibn umayyah ibn Abd Shams ibn Abd Manaf. Mother, Arwa, uh, an aristocrat of Quraysh. Her mother, Um Hakim bint Abdul Muttalib ibn Hashim, the twin sister of the Holy Prophet's father. So really kind of close. Uh, in kinship. Uh, he's one of the first converts to Islam, and the scholars say maybe the fifth. He is converting during Abu Bakr's very secret early da'wah when things are uh, really ominous. You know, it's like talking about something other than state ideology in Albania. Uh, uh, still places like that today. Um, And that's how it was in the days of the the secret persecution. So Ibn Ishaq says that first of the male convert Abu Bakr, then Ali, then Zayd bin Haritha, and then Uthman bin Affan. And most of the, that's the earliest books book, and most of the later historians say, yeah. So that's really sabaq, precedence in Islam, which is one of the ways in which we kind of rank the Sahaba Um, The people of Badr and the people who are the Muhajirun and then the Ansar. It's different gradations of the the Sahaba, although of course it's not always uh, an immediate indication of who should do what. Because again, we're not looking at ideology. Remember those, uh, uh, I think it was um, Himmler or somebody who had party number number party member number eight or something. He had a little badge saying this and for them to be one of the first Nazis was a big deal, but that was just kind of ego. It didn't mean anything, but the longer you're with God's messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa and the more of his tribulations that you share with him, that obviously is a sign uh, that you are uh, trustworthy. So he is a, a big name convert Uh, And of course, this throws the cat amongst the pigeons and his uh, uncle, al-Hakam ibn Abil As, kind of goes up to him and physically grabs him, starts uh, shaking him and shouting at him, uh, and then takes him off and ties him to a post in a public place and saying, are you going to leave? the religion of your ancestors, the deen of your ancestors. He should have said ideology, I guess, because they were to comply or else. Um, by Allah, I will not leave you until you give this up. But Othman says, Wallahi ma taraktu ma ana fihi abada. But Uthman takes an oath and swears, by Allah, I will never leave this ever. And eventually, after a lot more shaking, the uncle kind of Gives up, and all of the converts have this experience that, uh, oh, you become a terrorist, oh, you're going to hang out with weird people, oh, you're going to be sold into slavery in Sudan or something. And these are the usual kind of parental freak out that convert parents you know, sometimes experience, but eventually, when you're strong, they kind of kind of reconfigure it, and you give them some flowers and chocolates and remember their birthdays for a change, and it kind of settles down. And this is constant. It's a constant of human nature. People don't want to be. Isolated from their own flesh and blood. As-sabiqoon al awwalun uh Quranic phrase, the, pre- the first predecessors in Islam. Some would identify with these who were Muslim at the time of the first migration to Al-Habasha, Ethiopia, who actually participated in it. So he goes uh, and already he has um, the Holy Prophet's uh, daughter, Ruqayya, as his spouse. And together they go to Al Habasha. Uh, and so the Holy Prophet's one of the first prayers that is recorded of him that he makes for Othman is Othmanu awwalu man ma'a ahlihi. Othman is the first to have made hijrah with his family, um, and it said that he was the first to have uh, done this since the time of uh, Sayyidina Laut, salam. This is recorded in the hadith collection. So he's taking his family with him and in Ethiopia they kind of they're a sort of sensation because one of the things that is narrated of him is that he was of very extreme physical beauty at this time kind of uh, his early forties in his prime uh magnificent and also (coughs) Rukaya, his wife is stunningly beautiful and this is one of the reasons it seems why that the Najershi and his uh, entourage kind of melted. And from that time, it's actually been a a principle of Sharia that you should never appoint as an ambassador anybody who really isn't good to look at. (laughs) I don't know if the Foreign Office have the same principle, but I don't know, maybe they'll appoint somebody who's lost an eye and kind of has no teeth to be uh, Her Majesty's representative to Abu Zabi or Gambia or somewhere, but it's... uh, it's just good psychology that if you're pleading a case, you kind of look uh, uh, look magnificent because human beings naturally are inclined to beauty. So they were kind of radiant and, and luminous. And one of the Sahaba says, Raetu othmani bin or minhu I saw is reminiscing, Othman bin Afan. And never in my life have I seen a man or even a woman whose face was more beautiful than his. So he was really uh, a sensation, and this is one of the things that is recalled of him. <coughs> Osama bin Zayd narrates The messenger once sent me to Othman's house with a plate of food, so I go in. فَشَرَعْتُ ila إِلَىٰ وَجْهِ taratan wa وَإِلَىٰ وَجْهِ I went in and there was Ruqayya, Allah be pleased with her, sitting down, and then I couldn't stop looking at Uthman and at her and at Uthman and at her. Uh, and when I returned, the messenger said, have you ever seen a more beautiful couple than they? And I said, لا يا رسول never. So pretty dazzling. Uh, there's also a, a range of hadiths in which the holy prophet comments on a resemblance between Othman and uh Hazrat ibrahim alaihi salam this comes up in a number of hadiths and what are we to make of this is it a physical resemblance or some kind of spiritual resemblance uh, but he uh, often says that he found this uh, this tashabuh, this this resemblance and it may well be that this has something to do with what is of most famous quality or characteristic. The khatib is on the Minbar and he's finishing his khutbah and he says, And all of the people who can't understand Arabic say, Ima Amin, Amin, although the du'a has finished, but it's just praising Othman, but never mind. Uh, it's a prayer that's already come about. Uh, and the one who is most sincere in modesty is Othman. Uh, that's what we say of the third of the for khilafas, and uh what is what are we to understand by this modesty and this is maybe the heart of what we want to get at today if we're looking at the very earliest muslims those who are sunnah themselves still illuminated by the the memory of the sahib al-risala alayhi uh, each of them having a different form of human perfection that is to do with inheritance, DNA, upbringing, whatever, we're all different. Ideology tries to squeeze us onto that Procustrian <laughs> bed. Deen says, let's see what Allah has made of you and see how you can be perfect and represent the sunnah in a perfect form according to what, what, what you are made to be. So, أستقوهم هيا أن uh, this idea of Hayat seems to conflict completely with our conventional view of what leadership might be. Hayat is kind of like being modest. Uh, there's sound hadiths in which it was reported that Othman, even when in the kind of shower cubicle, would be like that and wouldn't stand up. So it could naturally haya, a modest person. Uh, What kind of leader is that? It's not like Prince Andrew or Boris or Trump or these people who are now seen as symbols of immodesty. Uh, The darkest secrets of what you once did, you kind of blab about it in front of a camera. Uh, This is not the Islamic way. And the Holy Prophet says, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Every religion has a particular virtue that characterizes it, the spiritual type that it favors, and that of Islam is Hayat. So that's the essence of the Islamic modality of being, uh, but how do we even translate it? It's so specific to. Islam, it's another of those kind of untranslatable things like sunnah. It's so Islamic that we don't have a word in English. Precedent, no, won't. No, sunnah is just sunnah. Uh, Hayat, sometimes we translate it as humility or modesty or shyness. Mm, That's kind of a bit of it. But uh, how does that become a paradigm of leadership? How do you do that and still be a shepherd responsible for all of the Muslims and these armies that by this time are in Central Asia and North Africa? Uh, That's uh, another very characteristic Islamic paradox, but it's again part of the prophetic sunnah, the prophetic uh, perfection. (laughs) Can Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, ashadduhayya'an minal bikri fi khidriha? The Holy Prophet was more modest, more shy than a virgin in her tent. Whoa. This is a man with a red turban and a scimitar who's unifying his people and the hero, the warrior, but more modest, more shy than the virgin in her tent. Which is kind of for the Arabs essence of uh, that again is something that you have to work out if you're going to understand what Islam means by its specific form of virtue. It's not the chest-beating warrior from Game of Thrones, with the, or whatever. It's it's not that. It's some other model of warrior excellence that to us seems very strange. Who is the person who is at the forefront of things? Who is the shyest of people? Hmm? This in our age of democratic politics when everybody is there because they want to be there <laughs> and modesty, Hayat wouldn't get you very far on the slippery pole of politics nowadays because it's all about you know, our CVs. You can't get a job unless you boast and tell half-truths. I'm a very dynamic, outgoing person and a team player and I've done... Uh, Islam says, cross it all out. So, you know, it's a problem for us. Um, uh, but this is, you know, the khulq al-Islam, the Holy Prophet says it, and it's a sound hadith, and how can we be shyer than the virgin in her tent and get anything done, even argue with the plumber? Uh, shy, it's uh, and one of these interesting paradoxes, but uh, it's a prophetic quality, uh, and it's... Characteristic of so much of Muslim social existence, modesty with the religion of hijab, the religion of niqab, the religion of no seclusion, to all of that. Other religions recognize the virtue of modesty, obviously. Immodesty is not appreciated by anybody if they're serious. Uh, but we really do these things. Uh, it's khalaq al-islam look at any group of muslims and see who sits next to whom and you know on a bus in turkey now if there's any one place on the bus and the woman gets on and there's a man who would have sat next to her he gets up and sit next to a man and the woman who was there goes and it's his wife and they rearrange it so that she doesn't have to sit next to a strange man and In the Muslim world these things are understood and this is important because we're often kind of uh dismissed for this as if we're uh, inhibited or buttoned up or puritanical. And that's not the Muslim way either. Ahaya coexists with a naturalness about every aspect of humanity, including marriage. Uh, So it's a modesty that is not an inhibition. Uh, And this, in the context of recent news, is kind of important. Because what is the only thing modernity can say about the male female relation they're equal equality liberation is equality the man and the woman are equal now when some 20 year old aspiring actress goes to see Harvey Weinstein in his suite at the Aldorf at the Waldorf Astoria in New York and she's alone and he's there you can say they're equal yes okay we can say they're equal of course created to be equal but that is not an adequate account of that situation. It's it not enough just to say they're equal, which is what the feminists will kind of want to do. Islam will say, well, no halwa, no illicit seclusion. The hadith says the shaitan is the third of them. And it will also say, where's her mahram? Her brother should be there, kind of obvious, or her father. Uh, but the feminist thing doesn't like that equality. Of course she can be there. Ooh. The reality of our messy world excludes any kind of idealistic image of what equality might mean. There are certain realities where modesty is usually in the woman's interest. Uh, usually a society where modesty is respected is one that uh, protects women better than one where people are just predators. Because something in the male temperament Man is either a predator or a protector. Uh, We're raptors, basically, and it's not necessarily something to be proud of, particularly. But the Sharia says, oh, these boundaries. Don't go to his hotel room. Don't go to the island in the Caribbean on the private jet and all of these things. Uh, It's not really a very complicated concept to understand. And it's always the women who get hurt in these situations because they end up with the baby or feeling psychologically damaged or trafficked or whatever. If you just say equality, you're not dealing with the reality of the fact that he's stronger, he's a bully, she's the one who's gonna get pregnant, he won't. It's Equality it doesn't quite do it. So this idea of hijab and of reserve between the genders is it's not really what the feminists like, but it certainly nine times out of 10 will serve the interests of the female rather than the male she's on a long-distance bus in Turkey. Does she really want to go to sleep when there's a guy she doesn't know next to her? No. So equality, fine. There has to be something else as well. And this Hayat, this modesty, which is very much the Islamic ethos is, is, is important. Uh, and all of these modernist Muslims who want to be uh, accepted or feel embarrassed by these kind of old customs and say well we don't, it doesn't really matter and we can just mingle freely and it's cool to socialize and well when they become victims or when the girls become victims which is the more usual case in the cruel inequalities of the real world uh, then they might think oh well it didn't work too well that time did it but then they end up you know, this is uh, half of our headlines are about what happens when you don't have modesty so uh, this is the quality of Sayyidina no, Uthman. And we have to get our heads around the fact that he's, when he becomes Khalifa, the Muslim thing is already enormous. It's the big new superpower in the world. And this man who is so hayi, modest is uh, in charge of it. So that indicates the radicalness of the human person generated by absence of ego. And we've seen this many times on this journey with these paradigms of leadership that somebody who really doesn't have ego is really different and strange doesn't care will clean the toilet for somebody and it doesn't matter doesn't even think about it afterwards and that's that's different not just to be committed to the poor like karl marx but to live with the poor he kind of lived a relatively comfortable life in Hampstead, or whatever it was, even though his wife said after he died, I wish Carl had spent less time writing about capital and more time earning some. <laughs> but yes, you know, it's human nature. But the Holy Prophet, <laughs> alayhi salatu alayhi salam, prays to be resurrected amongst the masakin. <clears throat> That's where he'll be. Not with us, kind of fortunate, centrally heated Westerners with our nice cars, but with the kind of barefoot. Rohingya or whoever is there that's where to find him and that's a different kind of leadership it's it's um, moving troubling guilt-inducing but that's yeah, religion turns everything upside down not through some kind of class war but through in something much deeper which is inverting people's priorities be with the poor love the poor the early prophets wouldn't go to sleep at night if there were a coin in his house that's That's radical. That's nowadays, that's an empty bank balance. That's the letter from the bailiffs. That's that world, the precariat. Uh, That's where the divine favor is likely to be. So uh, all of these figures represent the real revolution, which is the revolution in the human heart, which is what a new religion brings. So, uh, we find he's he's wealthy he's aristocratic he doesn't care it's like Imam al-Junaid's statement that zuhud asceticism doing without is for the heart to be empty of what the hand is empty of if you're poor but you really wish you had stuff that's not zuhud zuhud which is the quality of the All of the prophets is really not to care. Early Prophet, if there was food, he'd eat it. If there wasn't, he'd go to sleep hungry, and it wasn't what he was thinking about. It doesn't become an issue. So that again is kind of radical when you think about it. Not just not to mind being poor and putting up with it, but kind of not noticing it not being an issue. So عَنِ الْحَسْنَ قَالُ رَأَيْتُ عُثْمَانَ نَائِمًا فِي الْمَسْجِدِ فِي مَلْحَفَةٍ لَيْسَ حَوْلَهُ أَحَدٍ وَهُوَ أَمِيرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Hassan, this is uh, one of uh, Imam Ali's sons, said, I once saw Uthman sleeping alone in the mosque with a rough blanket over him, and he was أَمِيرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Wow, if you've dealt with of rich visitors uh, on cmc tours for instance ah,
1: it was really
0: not acceptable my air conditioning in my room last night you know it was so noisy and what is this cmc and why did you have put me in this hotel with the noisy air conditioner and, um, really sorry please don't stop giving us your thousand pounds a year or whatever really sorry about the air conditioning hmm uh, Othman is not even thinking about how he should be. He's one of the most powerful people in the world already, leading these unstoppable armies. Uh, he just crashes out in the mosque with a blanket. And doesn't isn't even at the beginning of an issue for him. So that's part of what we are looking at. Um, and in his own environment, He's well, wealthy, continues to be wealthy. He's one of the richest of the Sahaba. <inaudible> Uthman used to feed people the way a prince feeds people, and then he'd go to his house, and there would be vinegar and olives. That's just how he was. And again, he probably wouldn't even think about that. That was just not his concern. He used to ride around Medina, but not on a kind of smart white horse, but on a mule. And if he had his servant or secretary, he'd be kind of riding behind him on the mule. And it might not look so regal, but it's not exactly the coronation coach going down the mall, is it, to buck on all of the trumpets and the fanfares. That stuff is fine, but these people are different. He's happy with the mule and the secretary behind him. Uh, different. Uh, one aspect of his hayat, of his modesty, which is why modesty is not really a very good translation, uh, is uh, he was very soft hearted. If he stood to pray at a grave, he would weep until his beard became wet. Kind of soft-hearted, uh, remembering mortality. bin يوم الجمعة على عليه إزار غليظ ثمنه أربعة أو خمسة دراهم وريتة Somebody said, I once saw Uthman bin Affan on Friday. He was on the minbar giving the khutbah. Now we, and there are legitimate arguments for this, say, the Qur'an says, خُلُوا زِينَتَكُمْ masjid." You know, Be beautiful in every masjid, and that's part of respect for the mosque and for the, uh, what's going on there. Uh, but Othman, radiallahu an, wasn't part of the world of the huge turban and the kaftan and the 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 performance that we have even though that becomes how it should be because people naturally are going to respect the dignity of the person up there you can see the majesty of our civilization there if he's just in jeans and a t-shirt and kind of standing any old how and his phone is going off and he's just an ordinary bloke you don't respect the word so much and this is recognized you want to see the the solar, the majesty of of the ulama there, and this is appropriate. (laughs) But back in those days, I once saw Othman on Friday on the minbar, and he had uh, a rough um, loincloth from Aden, which might have been worth four or five coins, uh, and then a a torn kind of shirt which was on him. That also, this is part of the diversity. This is also part of prophetic perfection, you know, poverty and being clean, but not extravagant. Uh, uh, And this is what religion brings that is new, because, it's not the Byzantine emperor, and it's not the king of Persia, and it's not the uh, king, the emperor of China, where everything is kind of operatic in its magnificence. He was not even thinking about whether he should do that or not but he just got up to give the khutbah and it was probably so amazing the people were in tears and the paraphernalia wouldn't matter uh, another aspect of his shall we say aristocratic virtues is his generosity as is one of the things that is most remembered for and this again is an aspect of uh, prophetic perfection well rasulullahi <laughs> sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Asra' Bil Khayri Minari Al Morsala early Prophet was quicker in giving in giving than the winds which just come and go, the imagery being that it's kind of unpredictable and spontaneous. It's just like a force of nature. You just give. You don't think, oh, maybe next March I will give sadaqa and I think I can afford 120 pounds and such and such a charity and I'll note it in my diary and I'll get an email reminder, it's not like that. It's seeing the need and immediately, here you are. And it's like wind, it's a nice image. And that was the prophetic way. Sayyidina uh, Uthman was uh, the same, mm, and was famous for a number of key benefactions in the history of the Ummah in Medina when they came. And some of the tribes were not allowing them access to water uh, and so he paid for a well to be dug, which is the famous Bir Roma, uh which is still there. And I've been there and it's actually still, I don't know, the, somebody hasn't noticed it in Riyadh, but it's still a beautiful place with the palm trees and the water and it's delicious water. Each of the wells of Medina is traditionally believed to have a different taste. And the Ottoman elite, one of the things they would do would be to have a kind of water evening they would sample water from different parts of the world, and could, it was like wine tasting or something. But uh, probably ended rather better. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, Rumour was was famous, and it's still. Uh, my kids said it's it's a very uh, a very sacred place. He was the one who dug it, which was a big operation in those days before big yellow machines and knowing where to do it and how to. So uh, that was one of the things for which the holy prophet. Uh, asked for Allah's blessings that he spent for that. And the other was the Battle of Tabuk or the Expedition of Tabuk. أَنَّهُ Jaish uh, al Osra. This is called the Army of Difficulty because the army had to go in the summer and people had just suffered the, the siege and the campaigns and they were uh, impoverished. They found it difficult uh, and Uthman bin Affan made it possible by uh, equipping a thousand uh, cavalry. So let's let's listen to this and see if we can find a contemporary resonance for this expression of leadership. Khatabarasulullahi <laughs> salalahu Alihuasalam Fahatha ala Jeshil Osra Fakaloirin Bi Ahlsiha wa Aktabiha. The Holy Prophet gave an address and urged people to participate in the army of difficulty. And Uthman said, I will contribute a hundred camels with all of their saddles and accoutrements and, and reins. And the Holy Prophet again urged people. And Uthman stands up again and said, another hundred with its equipment. And so it goes on, And then the narrator said, after all of this, I saw the Holy Prophet saying, and moving his hand in some way, uh whatever Othman does after this is going to be sort of covered by this kind of this is an amazing sadaqa that he's giving now it's interesting that what we see here is a little bit similar to what we get sometimes with muslim fundraising today and we think oh dear this is like some kind of i don't know the voice or something there's a presenter and he's getting us worked up and this is nothing to do with this but this is what is happening uh, it's a kind of ancient thing. The holy prophet is urging them. I pledge 100 camels, ya Rasulallah. But he does it three times. Uh, and the result is that the, the army is, is equipped in that world where the empires and the tribes were out to annihilate uh, the, the early Muslims and the city of, of Medina. So, um, yeah, these making of pledges. As long as, of course, as you uh, fulfill the pledges uh, rather than, as has happened to the new mosque project, having to deal with checks that bounce and that kind of thing. Uh, um, if you actually do it with Sidq, uh, you know, it's it's a prophetic emulation. رأى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عثمان بن عفان يوم جيش العسرة جَائِيًا وَذَاهِبًا فَقَالَ اللَّهُمَّ The Holy Prophet saw Uthman coming and going and rushing about, trying to equip this army, and he prayed, O oh Allah, forgive Uthman that which he has turned to and turned away from, that which he hides and what he has announced, uh, that which he has not spoken about and that which he has spoken about. So we have this combination of this kind of physical beauty, aristocratic graciousness, noblesse oblige, uh, a complete indifference to how comfortable he was himself, uh, the traditional hospitality and generosity of the uh, well-trained uh, uh, nobleman, and also this kind of modesty, this hayat. Ashaddu ummati hayat an Uthman ibn Affan. The one in my ummah who has the most hayat is Uthman ibn Affan. But there's other things. One of the things that kind of made the biggest difference historically was his relationship to the Quran. Um, He is said to have been in all of Islamic history, one of only two Khalifas who was Hafiz, memorized the whole Qur'an. The other was Al-Ma'mun, the Abbasid Caliph, who was Hafiz. So he was somebody who preserved Allah's book uh, by heart uh, and was uh, involved during his Khilafah with making sure that the text that was known by the Sahaba who heard the Holy Prophet recite it fully, and they knew the text, uh, was preserved in some kind of written form that could then be sent out in order to be compared against various variations that were inevitably happening in faraway places. So he assembles a committee uh, in order to make sure that there's a kind of authorized version, if you like, which is the Othmanic recension. Uh, And there's, books now which claim to be that Qur'an, and it's really hard to determine their exact age because they've been through, obviously, 1,400 years of historic vicissitudes. But if you go to Tashkent, ancient Shash, capital of Uzbekistan, and you go to the Moyim Mubarak madrasa, which is a madrasa which has a hair from the beard of the Holy Prophet, it's called Moya Mubarak. Uh, next to it, they have a kind of museum of the Qur'an where they have what they say is the original Qur'an that Hazrati Uthman was reciting during his martyrdom so they'll point out the stains on the page that they say are his blood There's other copies of this they say there's one in Egypt Allahu a'lam, but his relationship to the Qur'an is something that the Ummah has certainly preserved in its in its memory Um, His titles also indicative of the kind of leader that he was. Uh, he's often known as dhul the man of the two lights. Maybe this is the most common of his, his epithets. dhul Sometimes if you see in some ceremonial mosques in parts of the Islamic world, very self-consciously Sunni, they'll have the names of the four khalifas and they might have in smaller characters the particular quality of that uh, khalifa. So he's Dun Norain uh the one with the two lights what are the two lights well there's one net text that indicates that this is to do with two particular forms of divine proximity that he will be granted in uh, paradise there will be two flashes of light that accompany him in the garden and there's early texts that indicate that but the more usual interpretation in the umma is that it he was the only person who ever married two of the daughters of the holy prophet وسلم, Ruqayya, as we saw um, who dies um, more or less during the battle of badr although she's in, in medina um, uh, and then Umm called form later on so the one who has two prophetic spouses the man of two lights and according to a narration from Uh, Imam Ali, it was the Holy Prophet, who gave him this title uh, specifically. So Ruqayya is the mother of his son uh, Abdullah ibn uh, Uthman. Uh, So he has his kunya, his patronymic Abu Abdullah is his kind of informal name. Um, And he is in, because his daughter is kind of dying, so he has permission not to go and join the Battle of Badr, Obviously. Uh, And he buries her as the news reaches Medina of uh, the victory of uh, Badr. And because he receives some of the khana'im, some of the booty of Badr, he's sometimes in some of the lists included as one of those who were of the people of uh, Badr. And then he marries Um Umm who also um, leaves him bereaved because she dies in the year nine of the hijra. And the Holy Prophet says in the Hadith, if I had a third unmarried daughter, I would give her to Othman as well, and I marry my daughters only with Wahi, with revelation. Yeah. And this is another indication of an aspect of prophetic emulation, which is that you uh, make sure that you marry your daughters to somebody who will honour them. Um, Othman certainly honored you know, the daughters of the holy prophet <coughs> and in this perhaps we can again go back to the idea of modesty and the idea also of respect and how we deal with these endless human sort of train crashes has now afflicted the royal family and boris johnson with his girlfriend in downing street but he's still got his wife somewhere else and it's uh, um, at a uh, event arranged by some Muslims recently, to which Boris Johnson was invited, the idea was that he would be sit, sat next to a woman in niqab because he makes these comments about letter boxes. So that would be interesting. And then during the event, he would suddenly realise it's actually his wife. <laughs> So that's one way of getting onto the front page of the Daily Mail, but it didn't happen that way. But uh, the point is, yeah, this is Eros, the Greek said, was the god that that never is defeated. You defeat him one way, he gets you some other way. And that's one reason why in our time where everything is kind of immodest and the internet is sort of freakish, outrageous immodesty, the religion that's been given for this time is the religion of really strict modesty and correct comportment and people being very careful about what they say because the ulama say that impropriety in that area of human life is more destructive than anything else. It really does very deep damage. Uh, so uh, the Holy Prophet salam, is obviously choosing men for his daughters, huge responsibility and this is part of being a shepherd. Uh, and gives his daughter not to somebody who's going to have a kind of luxury lifestyle, because he certainly doesn't, but to this person who is profoundly decent. And that's a major responsibility for Muslim parents always. Never mind status, prestige, etc., but somebody decent. And a footnote to this is that so much of the language about Islam and modernity focuses on Sharia disparities. Let's get rid of polygamy and let's change those inheritance laws, blah, blah, until everything is gone really that isn't just what the West wants. There's a lot of that chit-chat in the Muslim world as in the West. But actually the real issue, as we see with these people, is not really sharia disparities, but rather how decently people treat each other. You can have a system that's perfectly egalitarian and irons out any wrinkles, but if people are still unrefined and they're still predators and they're still not compassionate and they still don't have respect it's going to be a disaster and relationships won't last look at the divorce rate and relationships breaking up in modern england even though they've ironed out any kind of disparity between husband and wife decades ago but still it's not working so uh if we want to set our communities right which is evidently what we should because we're dysfunctional very often in this area sometimes our relationships don't work just saying, oh, let's have a new ijtihad about inheritance law or something isn't, isn't really the most useful place to look. But instead, how can we get people to behave better to each other and with more respect? So it's a kind of inward, akhlaqi, Sufi thing rather than a fiqhi thing. You can't actually change people's behavior through acts of parliament. You can punish them for... Being bad, but making them not bad in the first place is more interesting, and is really the essence of religion. So, the idea of the the spouse as shahid—that's you know, a Sufi rather than a faqih category—karamna uh, bani Adam. We have ennobled the descendants of Adam, uh, and Hawa and Adam were the summit of creation and that which was given to Adam was nothing short of the perfection that everything in the the garden partook of. That hemisphere uh, has to be seen as a sign of divine creativity and greatness and needs to be treated with respect, not just with equal rights. Uh, Respect and honoring and amazement and gratitude has to be the basis of the relationship, the male-female relationship in any culture. Uh, law is, you have to have good laws. That's not really going to reach far enough into the human heart to make relationships really work. So there has to be hey, yeah, modesty. Huh? Don't lord it over him or her or just press for this or that, but just be grateful and respectful and amazed. Uh, and the, 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 the blessings will come. Uh, and this is kind of... Obvious, but nowadays we're so keen on box ticking, and uh, we often have swanky weddings. And a few years later, it all kind of comes to nothing, and people tend not to recover fully from that. The Hadith says, "A talaq yahtezulahu Rahman." Divorce shakes the throne of the Rahman. It's uh, the most detested of all. Uh, permissible things. Uh, so we need to go into those relationships, which should be easy, the two hemispheres, it's the fitrah, what could be more obvious, uh, on the basis of respect for Allah's creation and the indicativity of gender rather than just what's in it for me and is this an acquisition and does she go along with me and agree with me and all of that kind of nafs talk. Uh, so. The decline of the inner, akhlaqi, Sufi dimension of Islam has actually made the fiqh much harder work because we're always looking at these books of talaq and things, and counseling and relationships. And that's just kind of an emergency escape hatch, a very occasional thing, rather than something that half of the population should um, be looking towards. So, Holy Prophet <laughs> salam, looks carefully to where he places his his family members, his DNA. This is vitally important and chooses somebody who's not going to worry about uh, the noisy air conditioner uh, but is a fundamentally decent, respectful human being. Uh, he's also known for, as one of the Sahaba who are most kind of emphatic in their ibadah. So if you look at that, Tafsir works where it says, "A man ana al sajidan wa rahmat Is he who is humbly standing for the stretches of the night, prostrate, prostrate, and upright, fearing the next world and hoping for for the mercy of his Lord? Uh, the Tafsir authors say on the authority of Ibn Omar. Ibn Affan is Uthman ibn Affan, and elsewhere in the books of Tafsir where it says, الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ ثُمَّ Amanu, وَآمَنُوا ثُمَّ wa وَأَحْسَنُوا وَاللَّهُ يُحِبُّ الْمُحْسِنِينَ those who have iman and do beautiful works, and then fear Allah, and then uh, have iman, and then fear Allah, and then have ihsan. Uh, Allah loves those who have ihsan. Very interesting verse Imam Ali says, that's also related specifically in connection with Uthman bin Affan. Uh, so, كان Uthman radiallahu anhu Yasumu وَيَقُومُ الْلَيْلِ إِلَّا هَجْأَةً مِنْ أَوَّلِهِ Othman used to fast continuously and pray every night except for a small rest that he'd take at the beginning of the night. And it's recorded by the historians that somebody once watched him in the mosque in Medina to see what is he doing exactly. Uh, And it turned out that he was reciting the entire Qur'an in two rakaz. Even today you hear stories of people doing that. You recite it clearly, but rapidly, and you can do that. It might take seven or eight hours It's possible. Um, but uh, this is one of the things that he was known to have done. Um, during the sad story of his uh, martyrdom, when the streets were full of you know, uncouth rioters trying to break down his door, his wife leant over from the parapet and said, إِنْ تَقْتُلُوهُ أَوْ تَتْرُكُوهُ فَإِنَّهُ كَانَ اللَّيْلَ كُلَّهُ فِي رَكْعَةٍ يَجْمَعُ His wife is saying, whether you kill him or let him live, he'll still be the man who recited the entire Qur'an in one rak'ah. She knew. She lived with him. He said, that's my husband. So what are you doing? Uh, famous for fiqh as well. Uh, particularly, some of the hadith that have come down to us and the early sayings and positions of the tabi'in about the Hajj are narrated specifically on the authority of Uthman ibn afan So, uh, again, there's a lot to be said. Uh about him. He was perhaps the closest counsellor to Abu Bakr al-Siddiq عنه, during his two years uh, khilafa, which were two very turbulent years. Also, according to some of the historians, like Baladhuri, the closest counsellor to uh, Hazrat Omar عنه, during his Khilafah, very involved. So, for instance, one of the issues that arose, these places are being conquered um what do you do with the lands so the big byzantine is a feudal system in the byzantine empire uh and the uh Dehqans, the big landowners of persia they kind of fled um or were slain on the field of battle what do you do with the lands and some of the conquerors were saying we want them and it's it no, Omar consults with Othman who says no they should be returned to their original owners that of course has a very big sort of impact on the demography and the balance of wealth in the uh, early Islamic empire and it's irrespective of whether they're Muslim or not so the Greek owners, the Armenians and so forth, the Copts if they're still there they they get their estates back (laughs) so Omar accepts this view (laughs) another of the there's so much that could be said on this. Uh, things that, when we think about leadership in Islam, remind us that it is pluriform, diverse. And again, a reminder that that is necessary if the sunnah is not to turn into ideology, uh, is the fact that these Khulafa Rashidin, Mahdiyin, rightly guided caliphs, the process by which each of them becomes caliph is very different that's important for us as an ummah if there was a verse in the Quran saying a ruler must come to power through XYZ inheritance is the eldest son or he takes power or whoever's in charge or whatever that would be binding upon us (coughs) now (coughs) you'd have ideology but in fact, uh, by divine providence, the process by which each of these four early caliphs comes to be Amir al-Mu'mineen is quite different. Mm. Uh, so it's by acclamation, the complex, difficult times, the saqifa of Bani Sa'ida, and eventually a kind of consensus and a very rowdy gathering, uh, the saqifa of the Bani Sa'idah, that Abu Bakr becomes uh, a And then he designates his successor by Nos. It's going to be Omar, and that's accepted. Uh, and then Omar dies, of course, suddenly assassinated. Um, things are not, it's not expected. What's going to happen now? Now, in the context of the ancient world, there was really only one way in which you could get to be ruler, which was uh, being born into it. That was the Egyptian model, all of those dynasties. That was the uh, Byzantine model um that was the uh, Persian model China they all had dynasties and the word Dawla originally meant dynasty it was the end- eldest son and of course in Europe and in England it's the same it's uh by primogeniture now in early Islam there were lots of people who thought well that has to be this case for us but ما كان أحدٍ من رجالكم. Muhammad, as the Quran says, is not the father of any of your men, and his daughters, apart from Hazrati Fatima, who's already ill, have predeceased him. So a, a kind of imperial idea of primogeniture. It's not going to be easily applied. But in any case, there's nothing in the Quran or the Sunnah that indicates that that's how it should be. The same Quran and Sunnah that's so detailed about so many other aspects of life, and the book of Wudu is this big. uh, How you get to be Amir and Mu'mini is something that's worked out consensually through disputation and trial and error in subsequent generations and centuries of discussion, but it's not really part of the Original thing. So ideology, which is always very politically obsessed, can't really get a handle on this because it's diverse. Each of these four rulers is coming to power through a different process. So how how does Othman express this? How does he begin his temporal <laughs> leadership? Omar, before he dies, uh, appoints a committee of six men uh, who are going to. Have this discussion uh, in consultation, shura, with the rest of the Muslims. Now, of course, you can't consult people who are in Qairawan and Kufa and places because it takes three months to get there and it's not, not going to work. So it, it's Medina, and Medina, as we saw with our Imam Malik lecture, has a particular paradigmatic representative value. It's the kind of ummah in uh, microcosm. So these six men who are chosen by Omar are Ali ibn Abi Talib, Othman ibn Affan, and Abdurrahman ibn Awf, who is somebody who ends up unwillingly really chairing this comi- committee, who again is one of the Sabiqun awwalun uh, They say he was the eighth convert to Islam uh, and was the one who rallied the troops at Uhud when it looked as if all was lost, and he's the one who shouted and ended up defending the Holy Prophet with a small band of faithful uh, warriors, a person of uh, immense distinction Sa'd ibn Abi Waqas, Zubayr Talha ibn These are the kind of inner core who have been around from the earliest times, and Omar knows they have only the interests of Islam at heart. So, Othman is on that committee, and they have three days. And the decision has to be on the fourth day. It's not like choosing the pope where you get all of these old guys from Bolivia or wherever and they sit together. Supposedly they have their discussions in Latin, but I don't know if it's quite like that. And they're not allowed out until they've chosen a pope and there's camp beds and they bring in pizzas and things and they have to decide who's the pope and then the white. You know the whole drama, the, the uh, operatic aspect of that. Well. These people are given three days, despite the trauma. said say, no, Omar would have sorted this out, but he's been stabbed. Um, Abdurrahman bin Auf chairs the committee, but says he will not stand. He will, he will not become the Khalifa. لَسْتُ بِالَّذِي ala عَلَى هَذَا الْأَمْرِ He says, I'm not going to compete with you in this, this matter. But he presides, so he asks each of them in turn, would you do it? Starting with Imam Ali, who's the Holy Prophet's cousin, son in law. Ali does not speak. Azubair says it has to be either Ali or Othman. Othman says it should be Ali. Saad says Othman, majority kind of in favor of Othman, because remember he's been the kind of prime minister or the deputy for Abu Bakr and for. Omar and was trusted with two of the daughters of the Holy Prophet, Dun Nurain, etc. And I didn't mention the other titles, Dul Qiblatain, he prays towards the two Qiblas, Dul Hijratain, he participates in the two Hijras, he has a lot of these kind of dual titles. Uh, so a person of real distinction, and then they go out to sound out the people in Medina, and the consensus seems to be in favor of Othman. fourth day comes, they have to have a decision. abdur Rahman bin Auf goes out for Fajr prays in the mosque, and it must have been a pretty intense prayer. So after the prayer, uh Abdul Rahman bin bin asks people to stay, and then he sends out messages to the heads of the tribes and the muhajireen and the ansar and the military leaders, and then he stands up and Speaks to them. For Hamidal law, how ethna Ali Thummakal, Emma Bad, for any Nazar to fi, Emrin Nersi, washer were to whom Felem ajid whom ya dilun be off man Thummakal, ya off man, no ye oka ala sumna ti rasuli la, Solohu Ali, he was seldom, well califatani, in bad. So he stands up to give the speech he praises Allah uh, and then he says to proceed I have looked into the public affair um, and I have sought their counsel and I have found that they will not choose anyone other than Uthman and then he says "O Uthman I pledge allegiance to you according to the sunnah of Allah's messenger and that of the two Khalifas who came after him قَالَ نَعَمْ He accepts. فَبَايَعَهُ عَبْدُ وَبَايَعَهُ الْمُهَاجِرُونَ وَالْأَنصَارُ الْأَجْنَادِ وَالْمُسْلِمُونَ وَذَلِكَ لِغُرَّةِ الْمُحَرَّمِ بَعْدَ دَفْنِ عُمَرْ رَضِي اللَّهُ بِثَلَاثَةِ أَيَامِ And then Abdurrahman pledges his allegiance, and the Muhajirun and the Ansar do the same, and the leaders of the armies and the Muslims in general And this is at the beginning of Muharram, immediately after the burial of Omar. So this is in the year 24. So (coughs) it is interesting uh, that the royal principle, which was so universal at the time, doesn't really manifest in any of this. Now, in certain forms of early Shi'i Islam, the idea of primogeniture seems to be evident even though Ali is not the son of the Holy Prophet, he's his cousin, son-in-law, married to Fatima. So according to the royal understanding of things, yeah, he's the heir apparent, uh, the next of kin. So it should be he. So even though many of those who became the, what academics call the, the proto-Shia, those who thought it should be Ali, were focusing on his spiritual and historical eminence, there were some also who in the background thought well it has to be succession this is what everybody does and uh, sometimes some of the theorizing about the ahlul bait uh, when it gets larger than its due proportion and is no longer in balance tends to adopt some ideas of primogeniture or some kind of divine right of kings idea which is clearly not what, what these people are doing and clearly has no basis in the text of the quran so We can talk a little bit about some of his innovations when he actually was a leader. Um, uh, He continues the conquest and uh, it's always worth bearing in mind uh, that these conquests were done actively with the cooperation of local populations. So he is involved in the throwing out of the Greek elite from Armenia uh, but most of the fighting, it seems, was actually done by the Armenians themselves. So Monophysites are Monophysites and not Diophysites to accept the um, uh, theology of the great church in Constantinople. And it's the same with the conquest of Egypt under Omar, that there's a lot of resentment in religious minorities in the very cosmopolitan complex ancient world that is used by the early Muslim conquerors and finds the conquerors as being people who offer a much better deal than uh, the, uh, the Greek emperors ever did, the Jews in particular, who were more or less subject to systematic persecution, pogrom and annihilation, suddenly found, you can go and live in Jerusalem again. What? Are you the messiah? A lot of very interesting early uh, Jewish texts from that period, uh, and monastic texts which also indicate how the early khalafat would make um, donations, benefactions to the... Uh, monasteries. There's a chronicle by somebody called Pseudo Sibios that talks a lot about this. And it's, it's an interesting aspect. It's conquest, but it's kind of people are rather appreciative. And it said that it was the Jewish community of Spain who invited the Muslims to invade, even though the Khalifa hadn't got a clue what was happening until news reached him. It took a long time to get news from Gibraltar to uh, Baghdad in, in those days, and that it was Uh, uh, a kind of uh, conquest through collaboration Uh, but that takes us a little bit outside the the story today but this is the liberative dimension of these early conquests that are being done remember not in the name of somebody who's wearing a gigantic crown the, the, the English coronation crown is so heavy that the one who wears it has to be taught exactly how to sit because if you move your head the wrong way it'll actually break your neck because it's just such a heavy thing it's weighs a ton Uh, these people are not wearing crowns Uh, that's not their style they're sleeping under a blanket in the masjid and not even giving it a second thought so that's a different kind of imperial but not imperial expansion but in any case, one of the things that he does is that he creates the first Muslim navy, uh, because the, uh, one of the things that Muslim conquest is achieving is uh, creating a uni- unified Near East. The Romans had tried to conquer Persia, but they always failed. This was the Emperor Julian and his uh, ill-fated battles in Iraq. Uh, Empires always come to grief in Iraq, it seems. He actually dies on those. Campaigns, uh, but the Muslims unite the Eastern and the Western world. The only bit that they don't take is to the north, kind of Europe, uh, partly because Byzantine is getting in the way. Muawiyah besieges Constantinople for a year, but it has walls. And there's also a sense there's not an awful lot once you get past Constantinople. You've just got forests, and in England, you would have kind of naked people painted in blue who would appear from the forest and kind of angrily shake's at you and why why bother the Romans went as far as Scotland obviously nobody would want Scotland so Hadrian's Wall that's really what have they got porridge or something would rather stay in Italy um, but even England you know, there wasn't a strong it wasn't like being in Syria or Spain or some of those amazing places um, so uh, it's, again, a little bit outside our compass, but they were 90% of the distance from Medina to Cambridge. And that's not bad. Uh, but uh, Europe was kind of invented by these conquests because there would not been a Europe before. Uh, those places were just part of the Roman Empire, which was basically a Mediterranean empire rather than a European thing. So uh, it's Islam that invented Europe. That's uh, just a matter of historical fact, and no doubt they're really grateful. Um, So this incredible thing is happening while he's reciting the whole Quran in two rakahs and uh, helping the poor and sleeping in a mosque and so forth, a very extraordinary episode in human history. And he's creating the first Muslim uh, navy. Um, So uh, and this is still the Sahaba who were engaging in this. So uh, he appoints Mu'awiyah to be in charge of the campaign against Byzantine Cyprus. Um, One of the permanent consequences of those conquests was that maybe the generals, nobody really knows what became of them but the sahaba and the tabi'in still buried in those places and define as it were the subterranean deep roots of those places in islamic terms so the, uh, muawiyah's uh, invasion of cyprus with ubada ibn asamit who again is one of the great uh, 10 promised paradise um, his wife um hiram who had been the wet nurse of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi is on the campaign and dies in Cyprus. And if you've been to Cyprus, an easy jet goes to Larnaca, that's the cheapest flight. So you land at Larnaca, you look out of the window of this plane while everybody is doing their scratch cards and thinking about their duty for you. Look out of the window and there is this salt lake and a dome and that's the tomb of Om um Hiram, one of the Sahaba. And it's, if you actually get to go there, it's very close to the airport, Uh, it's a wonderful kind of peaceful place very simple and somehow still maybe it's imagination maybe it's something deeper has something of the uh, the determination and the sincerity and the humility of primal islam definitely a place to a place to visit so these people who've not really been outside their tribal hunting grounds before are now everywhere and are becoming spiritual hubs for Everywhere. So that's the Hala Sultan teke near Larnaca. And until Ataturk put an end to such things, uh, Muslim ships and the Ottoman navy, whenever they went near Cyprus, would always fire a salute in order to respect uh, Um Hiram and fly their flags at half-mast out of respect for her. So there's a Muslim navy, Rhodes is captured, the Byzantines counterattack. the famous Battle of the Masts, Ghazwat Dirtis Sawari. Uh, which is one of the great sea battles of, of, of history um, and a lot of other strategic important decisions so the port city for Mecca is now no longer Shaiba, but will be Jidda. so the city of Jeddah in Saudi Arabia kind of becomes significant as a result of this uh, uh, geographical decision he sends embassies everywhere so the first Muslims who go to Ceylon, Sri Lanka are his ambassador to the king of Salandeep and this a shrine for them there to this day. He sends the first Muslim embassy to China, apparently under sa ibn Abi Waqqas. They go by sea, which must have been quite a, a journey. And the Hui Muslims to this day consider that to be the beginning of Islam in China. Uh, sa is said to have met the, the time the emperor of the Tang Dynasty uh, and called him to Islam. And he gave them permission to spread Islam in China. Um, He strikes the first Muslim coins, uh, and we've already mentioned his Qur'an policy, the Othmanic recension, so uh, really busy, and I should try and wind up now. There's a lot to be said about his uh, uh, leadership qualities, but let's just fast-forward a little bit uh, and talk about uh, his demise, because there's something interesting here as well. Uh, Our external threats were more or less neutralised, but of course there were internal dissensions. This is the case with any Muslim community or perhaps any human community, inevitably. Um, There's gonna be people who are dissatisfied and people who complain. And there are some, particularly in Egypt, who don't like the governors that Othman is appointing. Now, Othman is confident that the old, experienced Meccan elites are now serious enough in their Islam to be, as it were, rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, a different kind of revolution. It's not that Russian revolution where you just kill the entire aristocracy and get the proletarians to do the just thing. All of these guys are still there. Abu Sufyan is still there, Muawiyah is in charge of the Navy, uh, and they have you know, generations of experience in running things, so he has no hesitation in appointing some of them to significant positions. And there's some people who think this isn't right. These are the people who persecuted the Holy Prophet and killed XYZ, Sahabas, and now they're, uh, they're up there again. So, this is the main uh, essence of the rumblings against uh, Othman. Uh, that come particularly from some of the soldiers who are in Egypt, but also in southern Iraq. And uh, even though he sends ambassadors to try and uh, restrain it, and he calls a council in Medina, 12 of the uh, Sahaba who are in the provinces to try and identify the problem. He sends Osama bin Zayd to Basra, Abdullah bin Omar to Syria, and so forth. Um, the complaints are continuing. Othman asks everybody to join him for the Hajj so that they can present their complaints. But they come to the Hajj, but they won't say anything because they can see the Sahaba here and they're not on side. These rebels start to take over in Egypt, Kufa, Basra, which looks <coughs> really serious. Uh, Othman doesn't have enough troops in Medina to re-establish control there. And he also really doesn't like the idea of Muslims fighting against other Muslims, which since Early time has been a kind of no-no that just hasn't happened. You fight against Byzantine aristocracy or some Persian knight or whatever, but (coughs) other Muslims, people saying la ilaha illallah on both sides. And this is part of his hayat, his kind of modesty, his humility. He doesn't want to be the one who will do that. So that's a crisis of leadership, if you like. Should he have sent armies to suppress them with his charisma and the sahaba behind him? Would have won, presumably. A second wave of conquests. He doesn't. And so they kind of start infiltrating towards the city of Medina. And they come to Medina and they come into the city. And still, he will not order them to be fought. They're wandering around the city of Medina, bold as brass, with their swords unsheathed and everything, riding their horses. This is the city of the Holy Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He doesn't want there to be bloodshed. So he orders people, to just let them come. And they uh, encircle his house. He issues the, the local population of Medina saying, can we get this, these ruffians out? Can we push them out? And uh, he says, no, there will be no fighting, no shedding of blood in the holy prophet's city. Um, the rebels then, uh, going to use force to prevent him from going out to the mosque. And they won't allow any food to enter his house. And they're just around his house um, protesting. Um, There are some small skirmishes. Al-Hassan bin Ali, who is there at the door, is is wounded defending the house from the skirmishers. And then you have these famous exchanges between Othman and sometimes his wife who are on the roof of the house trying to reason with these people. He's doing it directly. Sa'id Uthman, this is in Bukhari, Sa'id Uthman yawman al nasi ila qatlihi sabila. So Uthman goes up to the roof and he hears some of these people saying, we, we're going to kill him, find some way of killing him. faqaal wallahi ahalla And he says, by Allah, neither Allah nor his messenger have made my killing halal. سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهُ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ يَقُولُ لَا يَحِلُّ دَمُّ مُرِئٍ مُسْلِمٍ إِلَّا بِإِحْدَى ثَلَاثِ كُفْرٌ بَعْدَ إِسْلَامِ أو زِنَا بَعْدَ إِسْلَامِ أو قَتْلُ نَفْسٍ بِنَفْسِ I heard the holy prophet himself saying, the blood of a a Muslim man is not halal unless three things have happened. كُفْرٌ after Islam or زِنَا – adultery without any excuse, or murder. This is what the Holy Prophet has said, شَيْءًا I've done none of those things. Qal, La الله الله I will not go against the Holy Prophet's wishes for his Ummah by shedding a single drop of Muslim blood until I meet Allah. He says, What do you want? And they said, Resign, so that we can choose whoever we want. And he says, I will not take off a garment which Allah has caused me to wear. <speaking in Hebrew> so he makes this prediction. Which is still absolutely upon us today. He says, If you kill me, you will never love one another ever again, and you will never be together again against any enemy. He's kind of talking to the whole Ummah. If you kill me, that's the end of the <coughs> unity of the Ummah. Uh, you won't have this mutual love ever again. Muslims will not be completely united. Allah qalbi wahid with the heart of a single man. And you will never again be united in confronting an enemy. And then they start shooting arrows, some of them climb the back wall. It's just a house. <laughs> أَهُوَ إِمْرَأَتُهُ وَالنَّاسُ فَوْقَ And then they burst in on Othman while he was sitting, and the Qur'an on his lap, and his wife beside him, and there were people on the roof. And then somebody called Ibn Ramad attacked him. His wife, Nailah, throws herself over her husband to protect him, and her fingers are cut off. Othman is killed. ثُمَّ And then they run away, fleeing. Um, in the direction from which they'd entered. Um, so his wife, uh, Naila, even though she's wounded, goes out to give the news. And when the people came in, they found Othman had been stabbed to death, and they kind of were weeping and threw themselves upon upon him. And the news came to Ali, Talha and aizamil khabar, and they almost lost their minds so immense was this this news قال علي كيف قتل أمير المؤمنين على الباب قال لم نعلم so he says to his sons Hassan al-Hussein who according to most of the historians are at the door defending the house how could you allow the al-Mu'minin to be killed when you were at the door and they said we didn't know The rebels are pursued. Most of them are killed. Othman buried three days later after a Khilafah of 12 years uh, as a Shaheed. There doesn't need to be a a, a ghasl, a washing of his body. And some other accounts of his last moments. It was kind of just an act of kind of mad vengefulness mob rule a kind of uh, wild mentality that takes over a group like the gilets jaunes in paris a kind of crowd mentality that is quite animalistic <coughs> and uh, of course the mortified many of them what has been done and uh, uh, it's only imam ali who comes afterwards even though he's traumatized by this event and had, had uh, had no part in it, who manages to bring the Muslims together again. But from that time where he says, You'll never love each other altogether again, uh, the Ummah has had these fitness within it. Uh, different groups and tribes, and now nations, and the Sunnah and the Shia and the Zaidiyya and the Ismailiyah and the Ibadiyya and the Salafiyya and everything. That's been the Ummah, whereas at the beginning it was just a, a single. Uh, garment uh, on rent by any hand so you know, it's, a, it's a climacteric moment but we live in dunya and unity of a huge human collectivity in dunya is uh, rarely to be sought this is just how things are uh, but that is not the key memory that we have of him instead we have the memory of the man who was the man of modesty but the man who built this great navy and the man who sent the army against constantinople and the man who said that the byzantines can have their lands back once it's been conquered and the man who slept under a blanket in the mosque and the man who married two of the daughters of the, the best of creations, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, extraordinary so the take-home really is leadership is not about kind of standing up straight beating your chest and being the alpha male tarzan Yeah, there is a certain magnificence to masculinity that has its haq, that everybody recognizes. The warrior is a hero. But the warrior without ego, that's a more interesting (coughs) personality. The one who is not Tarzan roaring and beating his chest, saying, look at me, but the one who is dignified because of lack of ego rather than because of self-regard Ah, that's the Islamic ideal, the prophetic ideal, which is why these people also represent sunnah. By any of these stars, you'll be guided. Try and be like Othman, you'll be amazing. So yes, diversity is not offended by the principle of sunnah, but is in fact purified and uh, released to be itself. All of those khalafah were really different people. How they came to power was really different in each case. Uh, but they all represent extensions of the same prophetic light and the same sunnah. So in our diverse times, we need to kind of remember <coughs> that and be less freaked out by differences amongst ourselves, the Bangladeshi and the Pakistani and the Sunni and the Salafi. And, you know, well, there is a place for heterogeneity in this ummah. It's an ummah of the spectrum of the colors that are beautifully unfurled. It's not ideology, it's deen. And... Uh, this ikhtilaf, uh, is how things are divinely decreed to be. Barakallahu Afeequm wa al-Afu Minkum. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.